The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. This morning, we're going to unwrap the gift of justification pictured in Romans 10, verses 1 through 10, by posing three questions to the text. What is justification? How do we receive it? And why can I trust it? You can turn in your pew Bible to page 942 if you don't have a Bible of your own. And I'll be starting at verse 1 of chapter 5 in Romans. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were sinners we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive it, that we might unwrap and fully understand and grasp the gift of this, of justification that you give to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first question, what is justification? First, I'm going to tell you using a definition from our confession of faith, and then I want to show you from the scriptures. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 33, which we read together this morning, defines justification as an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons our sin and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Notice, it is an act. An act is something that is done at a point in time. It is once and done. It's an act of God, not man. God is the active agent. And what is God actively doing? Well, he's offering free grace. And what does God accomplish in this act of free grace? Well, two things. He pardons all of our sins, and two, he accepts us as righteous in his sight because of the righteousness of Christ, which is attributed to us. 
So not only are our debts paid in full, but we are actually made rich in the righteousness of Christ that is imputed or attributed to our account. So how do we get it? Well, we receive it by faith alone. It is not something we work for or try to deserve through paying God somehow. Rather, we receive it as God offers it through trusting in what God has done through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now there's the definition. Definitions are both helpful and important, but now that I've told you, let me show you. The great mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal described the moment God's act of justification busted into his life and changed him. It happened on November 23rd, 1654, and he recorded his experience on a piece of paper that he stitched into the lining of his overcoat. This is what it said. From about half past ten in the evening until about half past twelve, fire. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and not of the philosophers and savants. Certitude. Certitude, feeling joy and peace. Receiving this gift of justification by faith clarifies the moment that a person becomes a Christian. It happened to me at the age of 17 on August 3rd, 1991 in Glenspey, New York. And like Pascal, I describe the moment as an overwhelming fire that burned away all of my fears and gave me certainty of God's forgiveness and acceptance of me. And it left me with a sense of unshakable peace and an unexpected joy. Now, as we look at verses 1 through 5, we see the gift of justification produces four things. Peace with God, access to an ever-present grace, hope of divine glory, and sustained joy despite suffering. First, the gift of justification gives us peace with God. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God is an eternal and objective reality. It's, it's not a temporary ceasefire, but a hard-won, everlasting peace treaty signed in blood and guaranteed forever. Also, it's not simply a, a subjective feeling of peace, but it's as real as the sunrise. But like the sunrise, it does change your perspective of everything, like it did with Pascal, like it did with me in August 1991, moving me from darkness to light, from coldness to warmth. This gift of justification touches every area of life. The problem since the fall of man into sin back in the garden is that by nature we have been at war with God. And you may be thinking, well, I'm not attacking God. I'm not launching grenades at God. You may not be actively fighting against God, or so you think, but you're at least in a cold war with God. Any war with God, any enmity from sin and rebellion is ruinous. And since the time of our first parents, we have been living in a war zone, and it affects everything. The creation itself groans with sickness, suffering, and death. Life is not the way it's supposed to be. And because war with God lingers on, our joys do not penetrate as deeply as they should, nor last very long. And no amount of distraction or entertainment or community 
or accomplishment can drown out the ever-present sounds of the war that rages on between us and God. Conflict with God affects everything. From the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed, it haunts every relationship and every inch of creation bears the telltale signs of humanity's war with God. Famished souls, broken bodies, hollowed out communities. And that's what makes it all the more remarkable when Paul writes, because of the work of Jesus Christ, we now have peace with God. Present, continuous, objective, real, deep, lasting peace. How does that apply? If you are in Christ, God is no longer angry with you. His wrath has been satisfied. He is now reconciled and at peace with you. But if you are not in Christ, and you are still in your sin, and God's wrath remains upon you, but this gift of justification is for you if you would receive it, so that you can have peace with God. But that's not the only thing the gift of justification gives us. It also gives us access into an ever-present grace. Look at verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. When peace is won, the first thing that changes is your status. No longer are you viewed as an enemy, but a friend. No longer are you viewed suspiciously, but graciously. You're no longer dealt with cautiously, but you're embraced intimately. If I enter my mom's apartment unannounced at 3 a.m., I am immediately welcomed with loving concern. She would search my eyes and say, Dave, is everything okay? What can I get you? In other words, I'm given grace immediately. It's present. It's always acceptable. I stand upon it no matter what, even at 3 a.m. Why? Well, because I have the status of son. Now, if I went into a random house in my neighborhood at 3 a.m., I'm likely to get shot. Why? Well, because it's Pennsylvania. And like Texans, we tend to regard police as a secondary line of offense, permitted to help if they get there in time. But an unannounced entry at 3 a.m., I am presumed to be the enemy until I can prove friendship. See, status matters. That's my point. Strangers do not obtain status. Even well-mattered neighbors have limited status. But notice how access to to God is described in verse 2. Through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Present, continuous, we stand in it. What does this mean? It means... Not just an end of war with God, but a real peace that gives us complete, never-yielding intimacy, never-yielding, never-ending grace. How does this apply? You never have to fear rejection from God if you are in Christ. If you are justified by God through the sacrificial life and death of Jesus Christ, you always are welcome, no matter what. You don't have to justify yourself. Because Jesus has already justified you. But if you are not in Christ, you do not have that intimate access. The gift of justification provides peace with God and access into an ever-present grace. But third, it gives us hope of divine glory. Look at the second half of verse 2. And we rejoice 
in hope of the glory of God. Now, what specifically is the glory of God that he's speaking about here that we rejoice in? Charles Hodge writes that this verse, the glory of God, could mean either the glory God gives or the glory God possesses. Now, I think the more likely of the two terms, of the two meanings, is the glory God gives. Why? Well, well, notice it doesn't say we rejoice in the reality of the glory of God, but we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. See, God is always glorious. The glory he possesses does not wax and wane, so this verse cannot be taken to mean that we rejoice in the hope that someday God will be glorious because presently he is not. Rather, the writer says we rejoice in the hope of the glory God is giving to us. What is this glory that God gives to us? Well, in short, it's the complete the completion of our salvation, full redemption, total restoration, when, when all things are made new in glory. See, justification is just the beginning of all God has in store for his people. Yes, justification is vitally important, but God has so much more in store than just our justification. And unfortunately, many Christians mistakenly believe that praying to receive Jesus as your justifier, the one who forgives sins, is the sum total of what it means to be a Christian. But that is no more true than saying the finalization of an adoption is the sum total of what it means to be a child. Legal adoption is merely the beginning of a new, permanent relationship that will bring with it a whole lot more. And the truth is, we have a hard time imagining what a whole lot more entails because we've lived like orphans in a sinful, broken world. And all we know is brokenness and want. See, the hope of the glory of God takes time to sink in. My daughter Margot gave me permission to share this story. She was older when we adopted her. She was six years old. And having a daddy around was a new experience for her. And one day as I was sitting on the steps helping her tie her shoes, she looked me in the face and said, what do daddies do? And I stammered a bit trying to figure out where to begin. Uh, Well, daddies tie shoes. I know that, silly. What else do they do? She replied, Well, daddies love you even when you're afraid or when you're angry or when you cry or when you do bad things. And she just stared at me. And I said, and daddies have really big dreams for their little girls to help them become all God has created them to be. And trust me, that is beautiful. And I wasn't really sure I was getting through. She was just staring at me. So I lowered the bar a little bit and said, and and daddies buy you things too. Like new clothes, she interrupted unexpectedly. Sure, with mom's guidance, I'll buy you new clothes. But what do daddies do? Understanding would come eventually, but it would take time to sink in. And that's sort of like verse 2. Let me read it again. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
Justification like adoption happens in a moment and it's certainly something worth rejoicing in. But the hope that it provides, well, it gives us so much more and so much more to rejoice in. We, we not only get a new name, we get a, a new identity. We'll have new minds and new hearts, a new body, a new creation, a new kingdom. And the righteousness of Christ that is attributed to us by faith will one day actually truly, fully describe who we are as we become like Jesus. Because God will not stop until he has completed the good work he begun. How does this apply? Please, please, please surrender all forms of cynicism. Yes, the world is broken and hard. Yes, we struggle with vice and addiction. Hard things happen every day. Really bad, hurtful things. Some of you are here today, this morning, and you're barely holding it together. And it's tempted to become jaded and skeptical and to revert to an orphan mentality. But we need to remember this gift of justification changes our status, and therefore it changes our hope. We're not that different from my daughter. See, beginning to understand the gift of justification, the glory of God, it's like getting to know our Heavenly Father for the first time and we say, what, what do Heavenly Fathers do? And trust me when I tell you, He is more capable and more loving than you will ever know. And in fact, it will take an eternity for you in His heavenly home to be able to scratch the surface of His goodness and glory and the future He has in store for each and every one of His children. So the gift of justification provides peace with God, access to an ever-present grace, hope of God's glory, and fourthly, sustained joy despite suffering. Look at verses 3 through 6. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. One of the first questions we ask, I ask it too, and I hear people ask it constantly in counseling sessions, is that when they go through sufferings and trial and difficult, the first question they ask is, what did I do to deserve this? But the gift of justification changes our perspective that suffering is no longer viewed with despair, but amazingly with joy because suffering need not be viewed as punishment for sin because Jesus already paid that penalty for sin in full. So rather, we can view it differently, that according to God's wise providence, he's using those terrible things, those horrible things, those difficult trials, and he's using them for good in our lives to lead us to endurance, to character, to hope. And it never puts us to shame because he gives us his Holy Spirit which abides in us and wrestles in our heart to believe the truth about God, that God loves us. He is not against us. He is for us. And so any suffering that comes in our lives, he can use for good, and he will. So the gift of justification provides peace with God, access to present grace, hope of divine glory, and sustainable joy through suffering. Well, how do we get it? In verse 1 and 2, we're given the answer, by faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith. Notice the repeated term, by faith. Justification comes by faith in Jesus, not by our effort, 
not by our striving, not by anything we do, but only by faith in what Jesus has already done for us. Now, such faith goes against the natural religious instinct of every human being. In fact, we are so accustomed to thinking that we can earn our way into God's good graces that we can subtly turn this gift of faith into a self-reliant work. How do I mean? Well, we place our confidence not in Christ, but how much we trust in Christ. But see, it's not the purity and perfection of, of our faith that saves us. It is Christ that saves us. Jesus Christ himself said it only takes faith the side of a mustard seed. Several years ago, I took my family to the airport so we could fly to Disney World, the happiest place on earth. And as I sat in the terminal, I looked out on the tarmac at a very heavy piece of metal that was going to deliver us to our destination. And from a certain perspective, it seemed ridiculous to believe that a million pounds of nuts and bolts could ever get into the air. It's strangely balanced on three wheels, and you can't, it can't even move in reverse without help. And, and one of my kids who had never flown asked, Dad, are you sure it's going to work? <laughs> I said, I, I know it looks crazy, but it's the only way to fly. How much faith did it take to get to Disney? Just enough to get on the plane. We didn't have to understand all the ins and outs of aerodynamics or jet engine compulsion. We just had to move our trust from ourselves and from the ground under our feet to the plane. And whether you step onto that plane fully understanding things or not, whether you step on worried and excited or, or excited or exhausted, it doesn't matter. The plane will deliver you to your promised destination because it doesn't depend on you and what you do or how you feel or what you understand or fail to understand. It depends on the power and the ability of the object you place your faith in. And the same is true of justification through Jesus. It doesn't matter if you come to Jesus full of worry and doubt or full of excitement or if you're just exhausted from being grounded for so long. You don't need to first understand about every, everything about God and the Bible. You just need to trust that Jesus can deliver you and that you need him and to get on board by shifting your trust from yourself to him. You are saved by faith, and even that faith is a gift of God. So it's not the amount of faith or the purity of faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. It is Jesus, and he is strong to save. So that's how we get it, by faith, not self-reliance or works. Well, why can I trust it? The last question. First, we can trust it because it's timely. Look at verse 6. For while we were yet still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time. Now, many have asked, what made 2,000 years ago, on April 3rd, 33 AD, the right time for Jesus to be crucified? And theologians and historians have argued it was because of the fulfillment of prophecies that pointed to a narrow window of history. And that certainly is true, but... But Paul makes no reference here to Christ's death needing to happen during certain years. What does Paul reference? He references our need. While we were still weak and ungodly. Paul's not focused on a timeliness of history, but a timeliness of necessity. In other words, getting what you need when you need it. The distinctiveness of Christianity is that God comes and makes the biggest sacrifice imaginable 
dying on a cross when we are still weak and ungodly. And that is very good news for those among us who are weak and ungodly. But it's not really good news. It's kind of news you yawn at if you're self-assured or spiritually comfortable. How so? Think of situation A. You're driving home after a great day. All is well with the world, and suddenly red and blue lights flash in your rearview mirror, and you cry out sarcastically, perfect timing. You ruined my day. Situation B, you're walking home from the metro late at night. You see a hooded character slowly closing in on you. You turn down a side street they follow. Suddenly red and blue lights flash, and you cry out with relief. Perfect timing. You just saved the day. What's the difference? In situation A, you are safe and strong. You don't need a higher authority and you don't want it. No timing is good timing. In situation B, you are in danger and you are weak and you need a higher authority and you want it and the timing is perfect. How does this apply? If you think you're doing okay spiritually, if you're self-assured and self-righteous, no time is right for Jesus. You won't need him or want him even if he is trustworthy and proves himself true. However, if, if you know you are weak and ungodly, it is always the right time to come to Jesus. So what are you waiting for? Jesus comes to the weak. He comes to those who need him just when they need them. him. Are you weak of will, knowing the good things you should do but constantly failing to do them? Are you apathetic and uncaring? You just don't care like you once did. Are you weakened by sin and moral failure? Are you weakened by anxiety and depression? Are you just plain exhausted? Now is the perfect time. Jesus stands ready to save you. This is very good news. Receive it. Trust it. It comes just in time in your need and ungodliness. So trust it for that reason, but also trust it because it's loving. Look at verse 7 and 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, God's love is a crazy love. It's, it's one thing to love someone who is deserving and honorable and, and good and beautiful. That, that's only natural to love people like that. But to love the undeserving, the dishonorable, the bad, the ugly, that that takes a crazy love. That's not natural. That's supernatural. One pastor shares a story about a man he met named Hank, who was in his 60s but looked much older for the wear. And as they sat down, Hank described his financial troubles and health problems But the pastor was a little bit suspicious that Hank wasn't telling the whole story. And so after prodding, Hank eventually confessed to being married multiple times to troubled younger women he would often abuse verbally, physically, and sexually till they left him. Hank had multiple children with various women and was an evil father, beating his sons to toughen him up. And worse still, when he was drunk, Hank sexually abused his daughters. And those girls ended up living brutal lives, being treated by a legion of men in the same way they had been accustomed to being treated by their father. And the pastor confessed, to be honest, everything in, in me wanted to give the old haggard the beating of his life. 
I know that the Bible says Jesus died to save sinners, but I had a hard time sharing the gospel with this guy because I wanted him to face Jesus for justice in hell. And this pastor, after wrestling in prayer, wrote Hank a letter, and this is what he wrote. Hank, here's the bottom line. You should die and you should go to hell and Jesus should torment you forever just as you have tormented others. Jesus should repay you for every sadistic evil you have done. Every day of your eternity should be spent crying like you made your girls cry when you violated them and gnashing your teeth in pain like your boys did when you beat them. You were made by God with dignity, but you have sunk so deep into depravity that your life is nothing short of a disgraceful tragedy. However, Jesus is willing to be your redeemer, Hank. There's no reason for him to do so, so much good to a man like you who has done so much evil. But Hank, Jesus is nothing like you. He is sinless. He is gracious, loving, merciful, and kind. He's also tougher than you. But he did not beat those who were weak and vulnerable. Rather, he took a beating for the weak and vulnerable at the hands of evil thugs like you. And he did not cry like a baby like you did in my office. He took his beating like a man with his dignity intact because he was thinking of other people, including you, Hank, and not himself. See, Jesus has done the unthinkable and is willing to give you the one thing that you have never given others, grace. Hank, it's insulting to hear you talk about paying God back as if you ever could, as if he needed anything from you or there was anything you could give him that he could not obtain for himself. You are a pathetic man who remains proud and arrogantly thinks he can somehow barter with God. So Hank, it all comes down to you and Jesus. Either you will pay back God in eternal hell or Jesus, your eternal God, will pay your debt, forgive your sins, and grant you eternal life in him. Verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. I would never die for a guy like Hank. But Jesus did. God shows his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus reaches all the way down to the lowest, to the bottom of the barrel. Jesus got splinters on the cross as he proved he was willing to scrape the bottom of the barrel to save undeserving sinners. And if Jesus can save a guy like Hank, no one here this morning is so far sunk that they cannot be reached and raised out of their slimy pit and ransomed and redeemed and be forgiven and be restored. So you can trust Jesus. He is that loving. But not only that, you can trust the gift of justification because it's trustworthy and true. Look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, that God deals with sin in a just manner. The cross of Jesus Christ is not God sweeping sin under the rug and acting like it never happened. Rather, he is bringing it out into the public. He is weighing it upon the scales and dealing with it justly, legally, through the cross. See, God proves through the cross that he is both just and justifier of our sin. Working on secular college campuses for 20 years, I often heard the question, why did Jesus have to die? I mean, couldn't he just... Forgive, you know, and it usually comes with a wipe of the hand. Just forgive. Can't we just believe in a God of love and leave out all the blood and sacrifice? It seems primitive and and offensive to the very concept of love. 
Now, that's an easy objection, even believable, especially in the confines of an ivory tower. But it wears thin in the real world for two reasons. First, it it fails to understand how forgiveness actually works. And second, it neglects to grapple with how difficult it is to forgive. How does forgiveness work in the real world? If my neighbor backs over my mailbox and crushes it with his SUV, I have one of two options. I can exercise justice or I can forgive. If justice, I make him pay to fix it. But if I forgive, it will cost me. Time and money are both. See, both justice and forgiveness demand payment. With justice, the perpetrator pays. In forgiveness, the victim pays. That's how things work in the real world. Now, I picked a low-cost example, running over a mailbox. But what if the matter requires forgiveness of a more costly nature? Think of someone, all of you, right now, think of someone who's really wronged you. Maybe they've damaged your reputation. Maybe they abused you verbally, physically, or sexually, or maybe even for a long time. Maybe they abandoned you as a child. Maybe they stole something precious to you, your innocence or your spouse or, or your financial security. Do you have that person in mind? Are you starting to remember the pain of it? Then you'll understand my point that we can add insult to injury and become very irritating when we just quip, oh, just forgive them, it's easy peasy. Forgiveness is always costly sacrifice and we're suspicious of those who believe forgiveness is easy because chances are they've been protected. And they've had a charmed life. But those who've suffered know that forgiveness is anything but easy. It means not making the other person pay for what they've done to you. It means refusing to run them down to family and friends. It means engaging them with kindness and not ignoring them or lashing out at them. And to do those things is terribly difficult. It feels like a death of sorts. And if we cannot forgive... Without, be, without it being death to us, why should we expect it to be any different with God himself? Forgiveness by nature is costly sacrifice. And the forgiveness we have with God was won by the costly sacrifice of God. Rather than demand our blood, God offered his own. And so we can trust it for we see God paying the debt. The same demands that justice makes, he paid so that we could be forgiven. Trust God's justifications of sinners through Christ. It is not only timely and loving and trustworthy and true, but lastly, it's, it's permanently guaranteed. Look at verse 9. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more... Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Our justification with Jesus is permanently guaranteed. We cannot lose our salvation. What God starts, he will finish. Notice the sure foundation it stands upon in verse 9 and 10. Since you have been justified by his precious blood. And remember in verse 10, it happened while you were still enemies of God then how much more shall you be saved now that you are friends of God? He's using a lesser to greater argument here. If while you were enemies to God, God loved you that much, do you think he's going to hold out on you now, now that you're his friend? Do you think he's going to stop now when he went so far, even when you were an enemy? Never. He will never give up. 
You can be certain that you shall be saved by his life. Nothing can stop God from saving you in every way that you need to be saved. The rescue is guaranteed and guaranteed to happen in full. So in closing, what's our ultimate application? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus by faith. Receive his gift of justification and you will have peace with God. You will have access to a present continual grace. You will have hope that's unimaginable of glory, the glory of God. And you will, be, you will have a sustained joy through suffering. It's offered to you for free because Jesus paid for it in full. There's nothing you can do to earn this gift, and so you must receive it by faith. It comes at the perfect time while you're needy and ungodly. It's offered in love even to the worst of us. And it's trustworthy and true, and it comes with a forever guarantee. Will you take it if you haven't? If you've already taken it, will you go back and remember it and rest in it afresh again and again and a thousand times a day? Because you will never be offered a gift like this. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this amazing gift of justification. And I pray particularly for anyone here this morning that has not yet opened that gift for themselves. I pray that the word that was preached this morning would prick their hearts and minds, that you would get into the nooks and crannies of their heart and open it up. Give them the gift of faith so that they might open the gift of justification. And I pray for those here this morning that have forgotten what this gift's all about. That describes all of us in some way. Please refresh us. Let us gaze into the box of this beautiful gift as we gaze upon the cross. Let us remember and let it lead us to worship you with heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.